Foundation. Wax seal, wow. You don't see those very often, man. Nice paper. It's thick. Feels like linen. Oh, look at this calligraphy, Marilyn. This Marilyn Whirlwind. Very fancy. Looks like gold ink. It is. Really? Wow. What, is somebody's wedding? Party. Really? That's some party. Who's? Maurice. Maurice is having a party? A blowout. You're kidding. What for? Because he's alone and rich. Huh. Let me see. The invitations are in the mail going out through the town of Sicily. Invitations for a big feast that Maurice is putting on for, I think, the silver anniversary, which would be the 25th anniversary of K-Bear. And uh, I like the note that they put on the gold ink. Looks like gold ink and the the calligraphy, I guess, is what they're uh, marveling at. Charles, were you ever into calligraphy or have you ever seen your name written in calligraphy? No, I've never seen my name written into calligraphy. I don't fault individuals that are into it, though. (laughs) I think it looks like it could be something really fun uh, because it looks like there's a lot of intricacy and nuance to it than um, uh, appears to the eye. So, like, I'm assuming the pen obviously matters, the paper, uh, the texture, uh, just like all sorts of factors could really play into calligraphy, so it looks like a very fun field. But uh, no, I have uh, I'm, I don't really have an interest in it. Though. Yeah, I, I went through a phase where I had like some ink pens, like the calligraphy pens, and had like a book that I was trying to learn from. This was probably back in like elementary school. Um, I don't think I have terrible handwriting, but I certainly don't write in cursive. Uh, you know, I get, we learned that I guess in school, but um, yeah, I, it kind of kind of fell by the wayside. But I did receive, you know, like, you know how you get, like, the save the dates in the mail, and sometimes you'll get, like, a really fancy invitation to a friend's wedding. I have, uh, I've, I've, like, scanned my name. Uh, It was on an invitation for my cousin Josh, who was on the uh, podcast for his wedding. Uh, My name was, like, really fancily written on uh, the envelope for the save the date. Um, and so I just have that if I ever need to uh, use like a very fancy drawing of my name, I, I guess it's a writing of my name or have that scanned. Do you judge other people who have really bad handwriting or have really great handwriting? Uh, no, I wouldn't say I judge people with bad handwriting, but it certainly stands out if someone has good handwriting. Like I'm not going to judge you for bad handwriting. I think I think handwriting is so personal that even if it's bad, it's like a certain... Qual- like it's like a characteristic, it's like a texture. It like kind of describes the person, and I don't ever think that's a, a negative thing. But if someone has really nice handwriting, yeah, sure, it, it definitely stands out. I'm always surprised that there's uh, criminal shows whenever they bring <laughs> yeah. those. I don't know what they're called. Like the people that can uh, catch serial killers and they analyze <laughs> the handwriting. It's like, oh, this one's got like daddy issues. <laughs> it's like they just tell from the handwriting. It's some sort oh, of. Oh really? Well, I know they try to match. Uh, I don't, I always think that like that's not that's like inadmissible in court, but may, I I don't know. I just watched Zodiac recently, the David Fincher film, and that was a big thing for that case. They were like trying to match handwriting samples, and if it didn't match, then it would be like okay, then we have to drop this suspect because the handwriting doesn't match. And then there was like a thing where it's like, oh wait, no, he he's ambidextrous, so he writes one way with one hand and one way with the other. It, it was just always this rabbit hole that they couldn't match the handwriting. Mm. No, I, I thought I read somewhere where uh, those people were able to actually like accurately deduce people's individual traits and personalities based on the way they wrote. 
Interesting. Yeah, I don't know, like, if that's like entirely right, true right. or not. <laughs> I, I'm more willing to lean that it, like, it might be true. I mean, the people that go into that field of a uh, murdering, <laughs> I mean, maybe they do have like a specific handwriting. Well, who knows? But Charles, maybe we can talk about something that we have prepared for. What are, What are we talking about today? All right. So what we're talking about here is CBS Television sitcom series Northern Exposure. So my name is Charles. I'm always joined here with my co-host, Lee. Yeah, my name's Lee. This is the Northern Overexposure podcast. We aim to expand the reach of the show. Well, we focus on one episode at a time. And each episode of the podcast, we typically bring on a friend, someone who has never seen the show before and get their outsider opinion. So we're introducing the show to them. And also, we kind of just want to see, does this episode stand on its own? Does it... Uh, still makes sense in 2021, almost 30 years later. Today's episode is season four, episode 21, titled The Big Feast, directed by Rob Thompson. Uh, he's a series regular. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. I think he did the uh, season three finale, um, Sicily. Let me just double check that. That is correct. Uh, in this season, I'm just going to look at some of his credits here. In this season, Blowing Bubbles, that was with Mike Monroe. Um, Crime and Punishment, and Ill Wind, uh, and, and I'm sure he's got more uh, before and hopefully more coming up too. Oh, no, actually, this is his last episode uh, of Northern Exposure. Well, farewell, Rob, but uh, I think he did a pretty good job with this episode. The writers for this episode are Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, frequent writers for the show. They're uh, husband and wife um, writing partners. And finally, the air date, March 22nd, 1993. What's interesting, though, is the uh, on the invitations in this episode, they uh, set the date for the big feast as March 15th, 1993, which would have been the air date of the last episode. So I wonder, I think this is how shows work, but I wonder, do they really like shoot the episode and then it's like edited and it broadcasts a week later? That's like really fast. No, I really don't think that's the case, uh, especially for live action. Yeah. There's no way that it would cut that close. I know for animation, you can cut it down to the freaking hour before you mm. make it to the broadcast station. Wow. You, uh, you can do that. But like this type of stuff, they would have filmed this like months ago before it went to yeah, air. Yeah, at least if, uh, uh, that's usually how I it would works. agree, at least, at least like a month or maybe a few weeks. But uh, I'm guessing what happened is they maybe had planned for this episode to air on March 15th, or maybe they just thought it would be close. Because I feel like we've talked about this before, where they like, it's obvious that the order they shoot these episodes, sometimes they change the order of broadcast. Um, because well, one big clue for us is that Chris's hair sometimes will just get short, like all of a sudden, you know, and then it'll get long again. Like it'll, it'll change. Like it's, it's clear that these episodes were shot maybe out of order. Yeah, I, I think that's a good clue for us to zero in on when this was shot. But yeah, I, I'm guessing they just like tried to throw a dart into the dartboard <laughs> to see if they can get within the air day right there. But yeah, otherwise, uh, yeah, this episode, I thought, and I don't know how you personally felt about it, Lee, but I felt this was a very cynical episode, possibly the most cynical Ooh. episode I have ever seen of Northern Exposure. Damn. Uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel. Let's, let's see. What uh, aspects or what plot line do you think is the most cynical? Or do you think they're all quite cynical? I think that, okay, from my recollection, there's only uh, two major plot lines, right? It's Joel being dissed on his <laughs> invitation, and then there's the party, right? Yeah, and I guess Adam 
Adam has it. Yeah, but like uh, I think yeah. Adam and Shelly both fall into the party. Yeah, Shelly, I would say Shelly uh, has her plot line too. But yeah, they're they're all pretty much just like it's all entangled with the with the party. I think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think that one of the major themes and references that this episode was having was on Great Gatsby. Uh, Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald's magnum opus, was about like the decline of the American dream and how the high class were throwing these opulent parties that were of little substance, very hollow, and it reflected into the individuals that partake in them. And it showed how love was declining and how like there was a, a corrupt and greedy society filled with all of these individuals that were like that. And I think that this episode was like, it had to have been a direct reference to it, right? Yeah, that's a good point because, um, you know, I'm thinking now of Chris's speech at the dinner, like towards the end, and just Ruth Ann, how she's aware of uh, how frivolous, the frivolity of this all, but she's also admitting that, you know, she's definitely going to go to this party and she's and she ends up, she says, you know, she's going to enjoy herself. She ends up just like stuffing her face with hors d'oeuvres, you know, and, and things like that. Uh, there's yeah, there's certainly is a lot of of this episode that uh, on the surface I think it feels, God, it feels so great at that party because it's so lavish and wonderful and everyone is dressed nicely and everyone looks really beautiful. But um, yeah, I think if you if you think about it, maybe uh, maybe that's just sort of like the surface when there's sort of this more. Uh, disturbing underbelly to this all. And, and and I like that it's not a direct comment, but I think it certainly has those elements that maybe it shares with with uh, what you brought up in The Great Gatsby. Well, let's just go down the uh, episode then. Let's see how we uh, end up at the party. All right, yeah. Maybe we start from like the first scene with, with Joel here. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit beforehand. That was the opening bite right there. But essentially, Joel appears to be left out of the party. Didn't get an invitation. It's messed up. I feel like in the past, like, Two or three episodes, the past couple episodes, uh, Joel has been shunted by the town. Like at first, uh, there's that episode where he's sort of boycotting because the state of Alaska does not want to give him a vacation time. And then the town enters into a lawsuit against him. Uh, let's see, the last episode we just had when Mike was leaving, Joel, if Joel says one little critical thing about Mike, the, the town just like, you know, yells at him, just like backlashes. Uh, which, you know, of course, like Joel's sort of like a party pooper in that episode, but it, it just, it does feel funny that they have sort of turned their swords against Joel and God, it feels so terrible that Joel is just, is just left out here. It's, uh, yeah, it's a continuation of that soundbite, uh, where Marilyn taught, you know, it's, it's an invitation for Marilyn to go to the party and, uh, she tells him, no, there's no invitation for you in the stack of mail. It's, He's like, okay, all right, fine. Yeah, right before Marilyn tells him that he doesn't have an invitation, though, there is one little thing that I thought was interesting is that someone bailed on their cosmetic mm. surgery. It was about a benign mole, which is, I think, thematically appropriate. It was somebody that had this surgery that was going to be very expensive to remove something that did not need to be removed and just didn't do it. Yeah, I see. So it's like, you know, the frivolity of that. It's like, you know, this is not a necessary uh, surgery. It's expensive, but it's just something to comfort you. And uh, maybe we can relate that to sort of the frivolity of America, the wastefulness perhaps is, is some things we get into. Um, oh yeah, the, the, I wrote down the name of that patient because it was so strange. Mrs. Katak Nukani. I'm not sure if I said that right, but um, that's what the subtitles had. 
Uh, I do want to mention just one more thing before we leave this scene. It starts with Joel arriving to the office and he says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm late. I was stuck behind a cattle truck. Not very important, but uh, there is a deleted scene where we see Maurice driving a cattle truck into town. Uh, this is going to later be a key component for this like demigloss, which is uh, sort of this whole... Uh, MacGuffin for the episode, or it's just like a very central thing that they need to complete for the feast. Um, so it's nice to see that, you know, there's a lot of these different storylines are already crashing into each other with, with Joel sort of being like uh, being late in traffic. All right. That brings us to the next scene after the titles where we're looking in at Maurice's house. He's got all sorts of things in there. Uh, a wide assortment of wine, two fishes that he's trying to compare, a $10,000 cake that oh, is, yeah. I think it's supposed to look like K-Bear. Like it's supposed to reflect K-Bear. Uh, yeah, somewhere. I guess so. Yeah, he says it's a K-Bear cake. Yeah, I didn't really catch that from the design, but it did look like a, it did look like a very fancy cake. 10 G's, he says. Yeah, 10 G's. And this is where, like you had said, this is where the crux of the issue comes in for the episode where the, where the uh, steers... I think um, so, the, yeah. the necessary <laughs> the necessary components that you need to make this demi glace. I believe they have a name for it. It is called glace de viande. Oh yeah, Gla- glace de viande or whatever. They they I think they say that in the episode, or maybe Adam does. Right. Yeah, the glace de viande is a French meat glaze made by reducing stock, which would be dark field stock, beef stock, or chicken stock, to about one-tenth of its original volume, resulting in a concentrated brown stock with a thick, shiny consistency. So, yeah, it's essentially like a fancy word for sauce, right? Yeah, it's like a very, it's like, I think the chef will say like, ah, basically what happened is like, I think one of the employees took the demi-glace and sold it, to someone in Japan, like made off with it and like left. So they so they don't have it. And the chef says, oh, I'll just make stock or something. So demi-gloss is, I guess, similar to stock or maybe how you might use stock, uh, but it's just way more concentrated, much more flavorful. And uh, I do think the chef might be exaggerating, like the amount of concentration of the like demi-gloss. He says something like you take 40 steers or whatever and you end up, uh, you keep like cooking it down and you end up with like a teacup of demi-glace. You, you just mentioned like one out of 10 proportion. So <laughs> yeah, one out of 10 of its original volume. Uh, yeah, I don't really know how uh, accurate that is <laughs> yeah. either. Uh, I think it's very important to note the nationality of this chef. He is French right, right there. <laughs> Throughout the entire episode, we're going to see a lot of nationalities be called out, uh, mostly in my opinion for cynical purposes, because often they amount to nothing. They're, they're really just a fancy way of saying, look how fancy I am. Yeah, well, I'll say uh, with this French chef, he has a lot of, uh, basically, in like the span of maybe ten seconds, I think he lets out a few swear words, which I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to be like the FCC or anything, but I don't know that they've used very many swear words on this show. But uh, well, he starts off by saying "merde," which is in French. Uh, he says those. He calls uh, someone those cowboy sons of bitches, and he says there's an Argentinian bastard. I don't know, something, someone made off with this demi-glace and sold it to some Japanese people or, or something like that. But yeah, I found that was interesting uh, with this French chef. He's introduced, he's smoking a cigarette. Later, that cigarette gets like smacked out of his mouth by Adam. But uh, 
while he's smoking, he's appraising a fish. And, and uh, that's sort of the beginning of this scene. And later in the episode, we find out that this fish is spoiled rotten because it like sickens Marilyn later during the, the party. Yeah, I, I have thoughts on that, but okay, we'll, we'll get to that whenever it gets to the end of the episode. Do we just follow this all, like, how, how should we do this? Should we just follow along with the episode because it all kind of intertwines together? Yeah, maybe so. And if we pick up on, like, a plot line we could that is a little more separate, we could just kind of ride that to the end. But maybe we just keep going in order because this, like, this whole party thing is, it's throughout the entire episode and it's going to keep getting stacked upon. So we we can follow the party uh, and this uh, continually. I guess the next thing is... Uh, Joel trying to get that invitation. So, so we can move on to that in a second. But I did have one final thing about this, uh, this scene. There's a lot going on in this scene. Uh, Ron, you know, like Ron and Eric. Ron is here. He's in charge of decor, it seems. But Eric is not here. He says Eric was called away to Frisco. He says something about a former friend is trying to sell the Casa to Castro. I have no idea what that means. Is that like some sort of code? When he means Castro, does he mean like uh, Fidel Castro? Yeah, I I don't know. Sell the casa to Castro. I wonder if that's a saying. Uh, If you happen to know, listener, please write in to Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. And there's one other saying in this this scene. It comes from the French chef. He says that, you know, trying to make a demi-gloss is, uh, would be very hard at this stage. He says it would be easier to find a pearl and a pig's ear. I thought that might have been some maybe French idiom, but I could not find uh, that idiom when I looked it up online, but I did like it. Easier to find a pearl and a pig's ear. And that's all I got for that scene. We, we can move on. <laughs> yeah, so the next scene is, like you said, it's Joel trying to find his invitation, and he asked Ruth Ann, the next one down the line, who would be in charge of his invitation. And she's telling him, like, no, it's not in my uh, mail bin. It's not right there. And that's where Joel... Ask her a personal question, which I thought was kind of odd because in that scene, he says, may I ask you a personal question? And Ruth Ann says, like, if you must. And and I thought that was like, I guess she, I don't know. It it seemed like that you just wouldn't respond that way with that character. It seems like Ruth Ann would be fine with Joel asking her a personal question. But this one seems like like she was being intruded upon. Right. It's messed up. I I did think it was funny, though, uh, when Joel is, you know, he's asking her to check his mail he says, you know, sometimes people misplace things, especially old people. No offense. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. Uh, they mentioned beluga caviar, like as being something that might be served at the feast, the big feast. And, you know, I forgot to check uh, what, what they said the price was in the episode, but I just did a Google search on a price check on um, beluga caviar. It seems like you might be able to get it for $35 an ounce. I don't remember what they said in the episode. I want to say it was like 50 bucks, but I'm not sure. Yeah, Joel says it was $50 an ounce for beluga caviar. I think you can get it cheaper today, maybe if you uh, shop in the right places. But in Alaska, I'm sure it's not cheap at all to get it there. But yeah, this is this is one of the first scenes where Ruth Ann is talking about sort of, you know, she's criticizing Maurice for spending all this money when there's... Uh, all these uh, problems of hunger in the world and and things like that, people who need help in the world, and uh, we're just going to spend all this money for a lavish celebration. But, you know, sort of in the same scene, Ruth Ann says, look at me, regular two-faced Annie. 
to to uh, to explain like you know I'm saying this now, but I'm totally going to enjoy this party. I'm going to love it. You know, right? And I thought that maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, but in the shot that it keeps going to with Joel, he has a lot of posters framed in his background, and one of them is a is like a mermaid boy. Yes, I noticed um, that. Yeah, half fish, half man, right there, indicating a dual nature. Which would, you know, indicate on Ruth Ann, who is you know, very greedy and corrupt this episode, but also like enough to know that she is that. Okay, well, the next scene, Joel is in the brick and uh, he plays. I, I wrote down the order again. Uh, well, they've got cream of cauliflower and, uh, you know, Joel says, I'll take my chances. Uh, he also wants a moose burger, but please tell Dave under no circumstances any of that special brick sauce which according to Shelley is pickle chips and olive pieces, uh, which is very interesting. Kind of sounds like what you might have on like a muffalata or something. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's sad because Joel gets this bowl of cream of cauliflower, which just looks kind of like gruel. Sure, it tastes fine, but it doesn't look very appetizing. And uh, everyone around him is talking about their invitations and the food and uh, the, the like expensive, delicious uh, gourmet food that they're going to have at the, at the party. Yeah, they're all talking about this fancy food. Uh, Holling is really into croquembouche uh, right there. Have you ever seen croquembouche before? No, I haven't. Let me check it out. It's very beautiful looking in my opinion. Oh, uh, you know what? I did sort of get into um, the Great British Baking Show Bake Off thing uh, mm. <laughs> during quarantine. I think they made something like this, uh, <laughs> but it looks good. It looks really good. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, uh, Crookenbush looks like a pyramid made of like these sugary spheres. Kind of like donut holes got, or something. <laughs> but I'm yeah, sure they're like they're filled like, with uh, cream or something, right? Yeah. They're like puff uh, pastries. Mm. Uh, and... Yeah, and on the outside of it, it almost looks like Christmas lights that are strewn on the outside of it. Um, it's sugar. Uh, the entire process to make croquembouche is very complicated, and it takes forever. So, yeah, Holling's got high taste right there. Are you an individual that likes or appreciates, uh, I guess, fine dining is the word? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I don't find that I enjoy it very much myself. It's obviously very expensive. But uh, no, I love, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, of course, I love it. Yeah, I think that I have no opinion on it in that uh, I, I'm going to get a little bit into my pet peeves, I guess. It's, it's not really much of a pet peeve. It's like a mini pet peeve. But you'll find people say like, oh, I don't like any of that fine dining stuff. It's all about like uh, Cheetos and Doritos for me <laughs> or something like that. And like they're trying to appeal to like the common man. Right. And, like, and I get that. But also it's like it's I don't think there's anything wrong with liking fine dining. But then also like if you go to the other end of the spectrum you get people uh that will talk about like oh you gotta try this cuisine you gotta try this item it's so good how could you be eating at such trash establishments and they'll go on and on and on about like uh some sort of microbrewery or some sort of <laughs> thing like that and it's like i don't uh yeah so i'm, I'm usually in the in between of just having no opinion i would say yeah it's not right for someone to fault you for your tastes like if they're if they say things like how could you eat that you know but I think uh, I think it is something to talk about. If you've never had this, you, you would want to recommend. Oh, you should try it like this. Like this is, you know, because it's um, sort of like when someone says, uh, "Sorry, <laughs> I watched the movie Chef recently with uh, John Favreau. <laughs> so good, I love that movie." Um, but 
uh, they talk about like, it's very early on and like his son, uh, he's bringing his son to like a food market and uh, they're trying all these different foods and his son's like, why didn't we get any beignets or something? Like that looks that looks like fun, you know, because it's like sweet food. And he's like, oh, you don't want those beignets. Like it's, uh, you want to go like get, get them in New Orleans. He's like, yeah, but we have them here. It's like, it's not the same. Like, you know, it's not the same kind of food that you would get in New Orleans. So... And then what's nice is they end up, you know, that's a big thing. Like the son really wants to go and sort of uh, that wish is fulfilled throughout the, you, you should watch the movie if you haven't, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I Yeah, no, no, I've seen Chef. Yeah. And now that you're explaining that scene out to me, I think that's actually kind of messed up. Cause like, what what if, there was no guarantee they were going to New Orleans. No. Oh no, there was, uh, there was. Well, okay, I'm sorry. Well, there kind of wasn't at the time because actually the dad totally agreed to do it, but he wasn't going to do it at the time. But the little kid thought that there was like a potential. Yes, the little kid believed that. And the that dad. Was, and that's kind of what's sad is like the kid, um, he kind of put his hopes and dreams into it and the dad kind of dashed them. Uh, <laughs> and then it's only later. We're going to spoil it, but yeah, you should watch it. They end up going. Yeah. But I was just going to say, like, that's kind of messed up if, like, he knew that he wasn't going to go there at all and the child just wanted to try, like, some form of yeah. beignets. It's like, no, you got to wait till you get there. It's like, I want to try India food. That doesn't mean I have to travel to India to have yeah, it. Yeah, it's like, I, there's no way. I don't have the money to go to India. So let me eat this. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, well, real fast. When they're all talk, sitting around in the brick, they talk about their invitations. Ed's is uh, addressed to Master Ed Chigliak. I think that's pretty cool, Master Ed. And uh, again, it's very sad because Joel doesn't even uh, make a peep about the fact that he wasn't invited. You know, he's just got to sit there and he just doesn't tell anybody, which I guess good on him, but... Ah, it's so sad. I, you know, I bet if he said something, they would they would comfort him or they would try to figure it out for him, you know? Right. And yeah, I think it's just playing more into Joel's sense of abandonment, like he had referenced in this episode. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there is something very painful about being excluded in that manner, yeah. and especially in a, in a way in which, like, you, you kind of know why you're being excluded, but it's not your fault. Like, whether it was, like, some action or skin color or whatever, uh, whatever, like, reason in which you can't control. It's like... Yeah, you can definitely feel the pain of Joel in this entire episode. Yeah. Well, the next scene has Maggie unloading some boxes from her truck. She's brought foie gras from Lyon, black truffles from Gascony, and asparagus from Amsterdam, which I didn't think sounded as exotic as those first two, but she explains that in Amsterdam, they grow it in the straw so that it never photosynthesizes. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I guess it's a different... It's a whole different thing. Uh, and then to top it off, she's got this very old, very expensive wine cushioned by straw in these boxes. It is a Chateau Latour, 1929. I think we've seen that label, like the Chateau Latour, that uh, vineyard or, or whatever you call it, in a previous episode, only because it seems like I had searched it before in my search history. <laughs> so uh, I couldn't tell you what episode it was, but... I think they mentioned that before in an episode. Um, yeah. yeah oh, uh, right before uh, I want to talk about Chekhov's wine right there. <laughs> the white asparagus, it is a real thing. It's just a little milder and more delicate in flavor oh. than the green variety. Yeah. Well, I think I've seen that. It's, wh- it's white asparagus. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, back to the wine that, 
like you you totally could tell was being set up to be destroyed in that very same scene because she's talking about like how dangerous it is and like the price uh, and yeah you know, she's got mittens on so I thought Shelly was just gonna oh, drop wow. it I thought that for sure was gonna happen but no uh, she destroys it by you know someone calling out to her name she like waxed uh, the bottle against the side of the truck <laughs> yeah and she hides the evidence you know which um. I don't know. Do you want to? This is. Do you want to break into plot lines? Because here is one that I think we could dash through kind of quickly. It's very separate from. I mean, it's yeah. obviously part of the party, but kind of we can we can we can extract it from the from the main plot line. Um, she is talking to Joel later, and uh, she can't get her mind off of it. Obviously, it's plaguing her for like the whole episode. And she says, you know, how much would like a very expensive bottle of wine cost? And uh, Joel starts lifting off some vineyards and he's like, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's like really old or really expensive, uh, blah, blah, blah. And the last one he says is Chateau Latour. And Shelley says that one. And of course, Joel says, well, the price would depend on the year. And she responds quickly, 1929. And uh, Joel prices it between $5,000 and $6,000. Uh, I found a price online, uh, excluding tax, uh, for $3,500. Now, I don't know if uh, that has to do with the fact that maybe this wine has peaked. I don't really know how to tell just by the year if a wine has peaked. I'm sure it differs between like the varieties of the grapes or the vintage or whatever. The vintage is the year, I guess, right? I'm not, I don't know anything about wine, but yeah, it turns out it might be a little cheaper today to get this bottle. Maybe that's because it, it has lost some value, but um Regardless, the scene, I like how the scene ends. Joel like pays, you know, whatever he owes before he leaves. It looks like it's just like $1 bill. It might just be a couple crumpled bills. And uh, Shelly picks it up as if to suggest like this is like insufficient. Like she's not going to get enough money to pay for this broken bottle. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's really interesting that the wine price went down. I think in the future, wine prices are actually going to go up because of the pandemic and U.S. tariffs that are being placed and the weather. There's been like an unusual frost that's been affecting France. Oh. So it's affecting up to 80% of vineyards, according to this article by CNN right here. I remember reading about it a few years ago. I think that what was even crazier is that like, I think they were wanting uh, COVID vaccines for these uh, individuals because they were uh, trying to tie it all into their uh, profession of how important it was because they had to go out there and, and do extraordinary effort in order to save all of the grapes on the vines right there. But yeah, the climate crisis is really affecting the wine industry. I believe that. Um, now, I wish we had Mike in this episode to, <laughs> to help us. No, uh, <laughs> take that back. Um, but... No, uh, so that's interesting. You said like they uh, they were wanting to give these um, wine workers, I guess, uh, the vaccine. Like, is it, are you saying like it's sort of like treated like frontline workers maybe? Like they're first in line? Yeah, they were equating it to that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Actually, I, I wonder if uh, it's not really Shelly, but Eve will later join Shelly. And we've got a little scene with Eve. I don't know if you wanted to. I know, Charles, you're a big fan of Eve. Yeah, so... Eve and Adam both show up in this episode right <laughs> yeah. here. Adam, of course, is going to drop by in any episode that's featuring fine dining right here. <laughs> and Eve is a nice surprise as well. Wait. She kind of surprises Joel. Yeah, I didn't think about that. He does just kind of walk into the kitchen and 
I don't know why, like it's not explained why. It's just like he could smell the, like he knew that there was going to be food. So he just, do they explain it? I don't, I don't think so. Right. Uh, not, not uh, I mean, they kind of just attribute it to Adam's <laughs> uh, sixth sense of knowing yeah. whenever like food is being prepared or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that Adam and Eve both have a child, Aldrich right there. Oh yeah. Whom, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's funny. Like, uh, cause, cause uh, when Joel meets, Aldrich, he's like, oh, let me guess, is this uh, Cain, Abel, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Says Aldrich, yeah. So he, Joel's going to be taking a look at uh, little Aldrich later in the episode. Um, I I mean, do you want to talk about that scene? Because it's a really short scene. It's not included in any other plot line. Uh, the, the one in the brick here? Uh, I mean, when he, uh, when he sees oh, the baby. Oh, when she goes to the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could do both. Uh, well, we just talked about the the Cain and Abel, Aldrich. Eve shames Joel about his hand soap, apparently, in this scene. But that's not really a big deal because she ends up going to see him, which is what you were getting at. And she talks about how the only thing I wrote down were was, because uh, I thought it was funny, was uh, Eve, when she was talking about the childbirth, she says, my contractions were extremely violent, extremely. And she like leans into him, to Joel to get the point across. <laughs> and this whole time, Joel's just like doing a checkup on uh, Aldrich. Yeah, I mean, she's a fantastic actress. I think that she elevates any scene that she's in, I think. <laughs> but uh, yeah, obviously a talented actress. I thought what was really funny is that the baby is in, I, I think it's like some sort of, I cannot identify what fur oh, that yeah. baby is on. <laughs> it is some sort, yeah. I, I don't know what, what kind of fur either, but it is in like a little fur um, blanket or something. Yeah, it's not wool. Like I thought it might be sheep's wool and no. I don't think it is unless no, someone no. can correct me on that. Yeah, I don't think so either. So I'm trying to see like what animal would have like <laughs> white pelt like that. It looks very, very comfy. Um, but yeah, that that's pretty much, that's a pretty short scene. And if we move on from there, Eve is at the brick and she can instantly tell that something's wrong with Shelly. She first uh, attributes it to maybe Shelly's thyroid or something. You know, like she she goes with a, sort of a diagnosis, but Shelly tells her that it's the the whole Chateau Latour, the, the wine bottle. Eve is really quick on the jump. She's like, well, hey, did you save the label? You know, you could put it on a different bottle. No one's going to know the difference. Of course, Shelly says, no, 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 it'll never pass. Like this is... Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Eve says that one time she substituted lawn clippings for dillweed and Adam didn't even recognize it. He said it was like the best salad. But uh, Shelly says, no, it's a, like a Chateau Latour, 1929. And the end of the scene is just Eve kind of reacting to that, being like, oh, if it's that, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be tough. Right. That's where Eve and Shelly are next brought into the brick after hours. Uh, the chairs are all stacked up. The ambiance is really nice because oh, yeah. I think the only source of lighting is like a red lamp and then like a mini lamp that they brought with them to illuminate their workshop laboratory right here. In this scene, they're trying to recreate or like, that's not the right word. They're not recreating it at all. <laughs> they're just trying to mimic the outside appearance of what this, uh, this 29 wine is. And I think that's very important to remember, they're not even trying to replicate the flavor whatsoever uh, because Eve says... Well, hmm? I thought they were. Oh, what does she say? Maybe they aren't. I thought they were, but go ahead. They're trying to replicate it, but like, obviously, like, it's just a full, like, 
the surface level appearances. Yeah. And that's then the like bigger part, to I guess. get to, like the earthy tones and stuff. But that's not like that's not all that wine is. There's something more to it. But if they're trying to make this, that's all they need it to be because they can have the illusion and the prestige of the wine carry it. Right. So all you need is just a surface level right there. Eve even says that previously she had fooled Adam with a Lafroy 45 saying, uh, <laughs> what, what did she use to, oh, to do dude, it? I don't even remember. Uh, what was it? She used Clan McGregor with a little liquid smoke and a dash of Chanel number no. five <laughs> and sandalwood insets. Oh yeah, that was her big... Uh piece de resistance like her her finishing touch (laughs) right and that's all it took to fool adam and initially i thought that adam was just being polite like he knew but he was just being polite because you know he didn't want to raise like a fuss on this but as it's revealed later at the uh, very last scene of the episode uh, no they they pull the wool underneath their eyes over their eyes over their eyes (laughs) pulls the wool over their eyes right there the food and drinks just look like the real deal it's fancy, but just made of regular, ordinary material. Again, speaking to the themes of like, you know, it's very hollow. It's not real at all. Yeah, it's totally an illusion. It's like a facade, an illusion. I definitely got the uh, the vibe of like the Emperor's New Clothes. You know, that children's story where uh, these weavers convince the Emperor that they've invented this new fabric that looks amazing and it's there's not it's invisible. But everyone pretends like it's so great that the emperor is like, oh, yes, of course, this looks, this is like the, the finest fabrics. And uh, it even goes, you know, what, is there like a, uh, oh, sorry, the, the movie with the llama has nothing to do with the, you know, the emperor's new groove. That has nothing to do with the story, does it? The, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. The uh, fable or the children's tale is like it ends up with the emperor parading around town in his new clothes and no one reacts to the fact that the emperor is just naked except for like a child who laughs because it's obvious to a child that, you know, they're not going to just like fall in line and in step with everyone else here. Um, So maybe that has uh, some bearing on sort of the attitudes towards just this lavish meal and everyone is like accepting of of this... um, Facsimile, is that the word? Like the, the just the fake version of the Chateau Latour. So maybe that's not the right word to use for the Chateau Latour. It's like a, a, a bogus or a, or a knockoff version of this. Whatever. You you get you get our point here. Uh yeah, that's that's kind of the end of the Shelley plot line. I uh I did write down one thing that kind of confused me. I don't know if we're gonna figure it out though, but when they're when they're making the fake Chateau Latour, uh, Shelley says, I'll never see Johnny again. Or she says, like, if Maurice finds out, I'll never see Johnny again. I wonder what that means. Is that, uh, this is just, I'm just throwing this out uh, in reference to like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, but I don't know if he was even hosting uh, at the time. Maybe. that That's a pretty good guess, actually. <laughs> uh, though at the time, well, when did this air? 1993? Mm-hmm. Wasn't Carson already off the air? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I don't think he was even hosting then. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Leno took over at that point because I know that Conan had taken over to Late Show late night at around that time. Oh. There's also an expression saying like he's going to throw a rod. I've never heard oh. that expression before. Yeah, I did, not, I did not catch that either. A lot of great expressions though, even though if I don't understand them, they, they feel like they make sense, you know? <laughs> Probably plays more into the theme of the episode. Like they're not actually real expressions, <laughs> but true. they sound real. <laughs> yeah, hey, there you go. Actually, that's a good. Uh, that's a good find there. But yeah, it, it culminates with 
Adam tasting the wine and uh, enjoying it very much. But there is a little bit where Shelly, you know, during the party is straight up not having a good time. You know, she's like, <laughs> it's very clear. She like tries to go down to the wine cellar, which by the way is enormous. There's a insane dolly shot that goes through all these aisles and aisles of uh, wine, just like wine on these shelves. And Shelly goes down there, but, you know, Maurice and Dr. Fleischman, and I feel like someone else is down there with them, but maybe it's just them two, and they they go down, and they're looking at the wine, and, like, Shelly has to go Adam's there hide. with them. Oh, okay. Adam's in there. Shelly's hiding in there, and, uh, you know, she goes back up to the party afterward, the, the whole deal with the wine tasting. But here's my biggest gripe, I think, with the... One of my biggest gripes with this episode is... Uh, it's a nice ending for Shelly. She can finally relax, but there's, I feel like there ought to be just like a little moment with Shelly after all this went down because she's like so stressed throughout the whole episode and she gets a very brief reaction where she shoots a glance over to Eve, you know, after Adam calls the wine delicious. She looks over to Eve, but Shelly is turning away from the camera when she looks at Eve. So we don't even get to like really get, there's like a very brief reaction that Shelly has on camera. I really just wish there was just like a longer, I think uh, I think you could have really sold something with, even with no words, but just a longer expression to show that Shelly, you know, she's won in the end, you know? Right. I think that they had the episode end like pretty much right there. Yeah. So they were just cutting it down to the wire right there. I, I, feel, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a gripe with it, but it's on a different scene. It was the one you were just describing where they were down in the wine cellar. I don't know why they had that many shots of Shelly being worried that she was going to be found out <laughs> in the wine cellar. I know they were trying to raise tensions and everything. I think they still could have cut it because the tension comes from them tasting the wine. Right. The tension is not in being caught in the wine cellar. I thought that was a very unnecessary scene, especially with one of the deleted scenes you had shown me. I think they could have had that instead. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I almost felt like the entire scene of them being in the wine cellar, other than the purpose of demonstrating enormous wealth and uh, gaudiness from Maurice, I don't think it's a necessary scene. Yeah. I don't think that it revealed a lot about the characters, in my opinion. Perhaps there's subtext that I'm missing, but... Still, I think that they should have substituted the scene with Joel and Maggie instead. Yeah, I mean, it serves like a, a function of the plot just to show that Shelly, like to explain how Shelly gets the wine into the party. But I mean, we kind of get that because when they arrive, Shelly doesn't want to take her coat off. That's a whole other scene when they arrive. So you understand that she probably is hiding the wine. And she's like, I got to go to the bathroom and she exits. But we could just cut out the cellar scene and just assume that she got the wine in where it needs to go. Yeah, yeah, especially because right after that scene, Holly mentions, it was like, oh, oh yeah. well, you know, you seem like so nervous and you got like a cobweb in your hair. You, The audience can piece together that she went down into the cellar. Yeah, maybe so. Um, my only guess for, I mean, why they, another guess for why they kept the cellar scene in is because uh, it was uh, an elaborate dolly shot that might've taken a lot of time to shoot and, uh, just dressing that scene with all those uh, wine bottles, which I'm sure they're, you know, they're not all real wine bottles, but still it probably took a lot of time to make that set uh, really come to life for the camera. So they probably felt like, okay, we, we spent like a, you know, like a whole day shooting this. You know, they spent a lot of time shooting it. So they're like, we got to keep it in. But that's always, that's never a great idea. Right. There's also, why is there a gate 
in the wine cellar. That's pretty is that cool. Common? Yeah, I don't know, but that is pretty cool. Like they go down the stairs and it's like actually gated. Maybe it's like to keep servants out, you know, which is kind of f***ed up. But uh, but yeah, that's, that's my only guess. I guess so. Yeah, that's that's a good reasoning. Right and like there. guests I just think, like, who like, you know, if you throw a big party, it's like you don't leave your safe open, I guess. You know, that, that, I guess some of that wine could be very, very valuable, you know? Yeah, you're right. I, I just, yeah, that, that makes more sense. Because in my mind, I was thinking like, if you've already broken into the house, you're already in there, man. Like, but no, which he said makes sense. Okay, well, that was Shelly. Let's let's reel it back to where we had left off in the plot when we first saw Shelly, like, break the bottle. Um, where we would pick up from there is uh, the, the Maurice's kitchen. They're working on a demigloss. And it's actually funny because Ed is, like, Ed is in charge of the demigloss somehow. Like, he's stirring a big pot or whatever, skimming a pot. And that's when Adam enters. And... Uh, the French chef seems to know him or something because Adam runs up and like slaps the cigarette out of his mouth, like I said. And uh, I have a soundbite that I want to play when he's like yelling at this French chef who apparently like abandoned him or like left him for dead somehow. I lived on rats for three weeks in a bombed out basement, you miserable piss and ingrate. Three opium merchants and a German shepherd had to dig me out. I paid him with the gold filling for my teeth. You, What is that? What's that smell? So, of course, Adam is reacting to the smell of the demigloss, but um, that's just a small taste of this rant that Adam goes on. He talks about how the French chef, I think, stole like his apple tart recipe or some sort of recipe from him. Uh, But he's always got some crazy story uh, that is filled with intrigue there. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I thought that right before Adam enters, uh, Maurice is looking for a violinist. Hmm. He's talking about really famous ones that he's trying to bag. I believe he names drops uh, Perlman and Stern, who are both very famous violinists. And he also says, like, I'm not going to accept some wet behind the ear Juilliard graduate to be my violinist. They're like, honestly, who's going to tell the difference? (laughs) Like, to get to Juilliard itself is an accomplishment. And if you graduate from Juilliard, you're probably very talented. I don't see why you couldn't have that either. It just doesn't have the prestige. Yeah, that also plays into what you were saying about how, you know, there's no real value difference there. It's just uh, sort of a, a brand name or like a... A sticker, it has like the, it has that prestige. Yeah, that brings us to the next scene with Joel in the brick. And he's talking with Marilyn, trying to say like, you know, he's not, he's not jealous. He's not upset. (laughs) He's been to the party at MoMA. You know, that was a wild place. Mick Jagger was there. You know, why, why should I care about this soiree, this Hicksville place with a pig on a stick? Yeah, Uh, of course, very trademark conversation between Joel and Marilyn. She doesn't say very much and he just opens up. He lets it all spill. And uh, he says, you know, I know why Maurice didn't invite me. That's the crazy thing. I know why. It's revealed that apparently someone from the IRS maybe asked Joel about Maurice. Like, does has has Joel ever seen Maurice uh, plow snow? And Joel said no. So this would mean, like, Joel, like, figured out. It's like, oh, it's like, uh, how, how am I supposed to know that Maurice is writing off his four-by as a snowplow for the city? And someone from the IRS comes to me and asks me if I've ever seen Maurice plow snow. Uh, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to lie to him? And... I really appreciate that Rob Morrow is like playing this line with guilt. Like the character feels really guilty and sad, you know? 
Uh, and he's not playing it with like real with like ridicule of how silly this whole idea is. But you know, I think it really it's really effective that we see he's he feels guilty, he feels bad, and he wants Maurice to be his friend. Yeah, I think that's kind of nice that it reveals more about Joel's character and that he cares about the feeling more than the ethics of it. Because the ethics of it are actually kind of messed up, in my opinion. And Maurice <laughs> is obviously a man of means. If he can afford this lavish, extravagant, opulent party, yet he's trying to save, like, at most, in my opinion, <laughs> I, I could be wrong here, but, like, at most a couple hundred bucks like of a, of a tax write-off. It's like, just, just pay it. Just give it to Uncle Sam. Come on, man. You're lying, first of all. Yeah. The scene kind of sours a little at the end because Joel says, I can't imagine how Maurice found out. That's the thing. Unless you told him. He says to Marilyn and she just gets up and leaves. <laughs> Carrying forward to the next scene, we see Adam making his way into the kitchen and kind of just doing his trademark Adam behavior. <laughs> Though I have to say, this scene, in my opinion, was pretty weak. Not because of the acting. I, I think that's that the that's Adam, the really good part of the scene is like his acting, but uh but the writing is kind of go ahead. Yeah. The the an actor can only do so much with uh dialogue. They like it's just the limitations of it. Sometimes they can really elevate it and turn it into a work of art. Other times it's just what you're left with. Like uh you know what ingredients you're left with just like cooking. <laughs> and in this one I felt like the dialogue was like incredibly weak but adam's trying to give it it is all yeah he's i really appreciate the adam's performance the physicality of it he seems very mad villain like evil he spreads his arms and like he just moves his whole body in anguish and in celebration and uh a couple of things i wrote down from this scene he's like yelling at the cooking staff it's kind of messed up he says i hate women that think they can cook i wrote that down uh but he asks them sort of a, maybe a rhetorical question, but he says, why do I even cook? He asks like to God, he's like, why do I even cook? And someone responds, because you're hungry. And uh, Adam uh, entreats this, this cook. He says like, well, what is, say it, say it, say what you just said. He's like, yes, because I am hungry because he wants to eat. He wants to eat something good that he made. Uh, but that's interesting. It's like, what? I don't know. Yeah, it's it, again, it's it's pretty thin, but uh, it's funny to think of like what is driving, what is the core of this just enigmatic, weird Adam character. Yeah, it goes. Uh, he finishes the scene by going on a diatribe about like smoked sturgeon with uh, like fancy toppings on it, and he, he's using very he's using very colorful. A language to describe the ingredients and blending it all into his mouth. And it ultimately, at least to me, doesn't really have a lot of payoff because it immediately, it ends with Maurice coming in with, uh, I think it's sweet bread or like material that could be turned into sweet bread. Yeah, so this is interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know about this, but it's called sweet breads, but it's not bread at all. So they bring in thymus and pancreas and uh, of some animal. And uh, Adam says, oh great, this is like with the sweet breads. And I never knew why it was called this. I had to look it up because uh, it's confusing. I thought maybe they do turn the, I, I thought, yeah, they take this thymus and pancreas, they make it into like a treat, like some sort of like bread, I don't know, some sort of pastry or something. But according to Wikipedia, the word sweetbread is first attested in the 16th century. But the etymology of the name is unclear. Sweet is perhaps used because the thymus is sweet and rich tasting, as opposed to a savory tasting uh, muscle flesh. 
Now, bread may come from B-R-E-D-E, bread. Uh, roasted meat is what that would mean, I guess, from uh, or from the Old English brood. I don't know how you say this. It's like an O with an E attached, and there's a line above it. But that would mean flesh or meat. So not at all about bread, though maybe sweet because the thymus might be sweet and rich tasting. Hmm, I didn't know that at all. Have you ever had sweet bread? No, I am not big on like very gamey meats, uh, though I suppose I would try it. I, you know, I think the idea of like a liver pate is always enticing to me, but I'm also very not, very not interested in, uh, I do not like liver. So I might think like, oh, liver pate, that sounds great. And then I'll take a bite and immediately. What, what about you? Are you like, do you like liver? Do you like any sort of gamey stuff? I've had, I've had liver pate before. Uh, it's not bad when you spread it on toast. Yeah. Um, it's very strong. So you have to spread like a thin amount in my opinion. Uh, but no, I've never had sweet bread myself. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to Chris on K-Bear. We get a little K-Bear monologue. There's some nice accordion music, I think, in the background here. But he has a just an announcement to designate a driver, you know, for don't, don't go too crazy with your partying tonight. He's, like, getting his attire ready. And uh, yeah, there's some stuff in the scene, but I, I boil it down to, like, the very end of the scene. I got to make a video out of this because... Uh, Chris's delivery of the line, mm, party. He says like he's looking at himself in a mirror as he's adjusting his tie or something. Yeah, I wonder how many takes they did of that. And I wonder why they settled on this one because that is not how I would have read that it's line so if I was Chris. I, I love it, but it's so geeky. Um, it's great. Yeah, I wonder, it seems like he might be doing an impression of something, but I don't think it's pop culture. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's from anything. <laughs> Party. Let's uh, segue to the next scene, which is right after Joel treating Eve's baby, is where Maurice comes in. Maurice is looking for some medical supplies for the party, even though he's like slightly insured. He knows that like, <laughs> you know, something might go wrong and they might sue him for all he's worth. That obviously enrages Joel. He starts like, you know, just stuffing ingredients into a box. Yeah, he's like throwing like band-aids, whatever. He's like, you can have this, you can have that. Like, sure, you can take it all, take it all. Oh, Maurice calls it uh, incidentals for his first aid kit. And Maurice is, can clearly see something's wrong. And so they, uh, you know, they they lay it out on the table. Joel says, you know, like, I don't know why you wouldn't invite me to your party. You know, uh, I think Joel admits, like, I apologize for the whole snowplow thing or whatever. I don't know if that's in this scene or the deleted scene, which we can talk about. Um, but uh, but the, the conclusion of this is that Maurice says, no, 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 no. Maggie had the invitations. You know, I'm sure your invitation was with Maggie. You know, she was delivering them. Uh, right. Which will spur Joel onto that. But to, just to briefly touch on the deleted scene uh, before this, it's a, it's one with Joel and Maurice. I think I'm, I'm happy they cut this out, but it's basically Maurice and Joel in the brick. And like, Joel's like, can I have a word with you? He starts talking to Maurice about like, you know... I feel really bad that I didn't go on that ice fishing trip with you. It's just that I was like, I really was sick that time. Again, we get this nice guilt from Joel. He's trying to apologize. And Maurice is, uh, can tell that something's really bugging Joel, very similarly to his reaction to Joel's uh, response to the whole first aid kit thing that we were talking about. It's very similar, but uh, Maurice is just, I think, too busy with the party. So he gets distracted and pulled away from the scene before Joel can ask him about the invitation. I'm glad they cut this because I, I feel like uh, 
I feel like it boils better if like Joel doesn't get to see Maurice until Maurice comes into his office, you know? Just doesn't make sense that Joel would not confront Maurice and like really kind of chase after that, but... Well, is that scene supposed to be before he he gets confronted? I had always thought that it came after. I think it, I would assume it's before um, because it's like almost as if Joel's trying to get to the point and be like, you know, I didn't, I don't understand why you didn't invite me, but Maurice, before you can get there, Maurice is taken from the scene. Mm, okay. Well, let's go down the line uh, and see who is next on the chopping block, which would be Maggie. Joel goes in, storms in, and starts talking to Maggie, saying, like, how could you do this to me? And he relates it to her relationship with Mike and him. He's saying that, like, she's only doing this because because of, like, whether consciously or unconsciously, she's just trying to act out from her rage of being left behind by Mike. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, like, it's classic Joel yelling at Maggie and them arguing, but I, I kind of laughed at it when Joel is, like, he says, uh, this is so hurtful and so cruel. You know, I have abandonment issues, <laughs> which I don't, I didn't know that he has abandonment issues, but I guess, yeah, obviously he does like in this episode. And there's probably some other instances of that. Well, you can kind of deduce it throughout the entire series because he does get <laughs> abandoned by his fiance. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. He does not, he's got scarred by that, you know? So, but Maggie says, no, you're, you're not on my mind. You're not on my conscious. You're not even on my subconscious. You're nowhere. Uh, I think that's about it for that scene, right? Yeah. Up next, we get a little bit of a quiet scene between Adam and Maurice. They're in what I would presume to be like Maurice's storage room yeah. for meats. Yeah, like I, th- I thought it was like a walk-in freezer or something, but it didn't like indicate a cold temperature necessarily. But in the scene, Maurice says something about like an old meat house that they had or that he knew of. So I just wrote meat house in my, like this might be his meat house, I guess is what he would call it. Mm, Yeah. He relates a story to Adam about the good old days in which he learned how to uh, slaughter a cow on his granddad's farm in Tulsa. And he's talking about this. And I think that that is an allusion to what he thinks the American dream is. Yeah. It's like, you know, living on this land and just, uh, ending a life with my own hand, but having purpose with it. I I think it's trying to allude to like what Maurice is seeking, but like that's never coming. Like that's obviously gone. Yeah. And is this also the scene where, uh, cause you were talking about like how they allude to other cultures, but kind of, kind of bash them. Like Maurice is talking about, this is like pure, like this is great American beef. Uh, he relates, he's like, not like the Kobe stuff or yada, yada, you know? Yeah, he calls a Nipponese, which is like a really strange way to oh, call it. It's not, well, it's That's, not strange, but it is like another word to call Japanese. Yeah, but I guess Americans wouldn't use that term. It's, it's, it's in, isn't right. that what, is that what Japanese people call Japan, Nippon? Uh, yeah, they can sometimes. Okay. They can call it Nippon and call it Japan. It's just that, like most Americans wouldn't call it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to mention about this scene. I was wondering if these like sides of beef, are they fake? Because like, uh, you know, that, that could be very expensive. Some of these look like they may have been prop. Um, but of course, in the foreground, Adam cuts a piece off of one. So like that would suggest that it's real, but maybe it's still just a prop. It's just like made to be uh, trimmed by Adam with like his knife. Uh, so that looks a little more convincing. Of course, it's the one closest to the camera, so they want to make it look good. Might be a real side of beef, but I did get the vibe that the the ones in the background were 
were fake. Yeah, I think that's got to be fake because <laughs> yeah. those are. I mean, what else are you gonna do with that? I guess maybe the crew, you could I cook guess, it. But yeah, yeah it's still you could so cook much it after. food for people. Yeah. yeah, such a waste uh, if they just dump that out. So I hope that it's just props right there. The uh, the scene ends with Maurice punching the beef. Like he's really obsessed with the beef, and uh, I think it's a bit exaggerated, but I kind of like it. The sound of his fist hitting the beef uh, is sort of. Um, supplemented with almost like a like it sounds like a rifle like a gunshot it's like really accented um it might not be a rifle but it, it has like a sharper has a good sound when he punches it <laughs> <laughs> i didn't notice that just trying to show off his guns yeah um so moving on from here the uh, there's like a scene where maurice is getting everything in line he's checking all his servers fingernails and uh then he moves out into the like sort of main hall, and Ron is very concerned um, about some flower arrangement. It's like something that most people can't even see, but I really love sort of like the professional environment of it because to to Ron, he knows something something is wrong, and maybe no one will notice it, but maybe it's also one of those things where like you don't notice it, but you feel it, you know, like that that's might be Ron's concern, and I love that Maurice has no clue like he he would never be able to even care but he uh, respects Ron's um professionalism or his uh his uh, skill with this so he's like it's very efficient it's very fast moving he's like delegating workers to help him uh but this also occurs to me Charles maybe you're going to say that this is the idea that this is something that no one will notice and they're spending so much time on it is in itself very um very opulent or fr frivolous or unnecessary, maybe. Yeah, uh, that's usually what I got out of this scene was that it was another reinforcement of it. There's also, he's arranging flowers, but like I could not, maybe it's just due to the quality of the video that <laughs> oh. I had. Also, it was just so many of them oh, that like I could not identify all of the flowers. I don't know if there's any symbolic meaning behind the flowers that he chose. Perhaps they indicate something that is very gaudy. But otherwise, yeah, I'm sorry. No, uh, no flower talk this episode. Sounds like we're closing the flower shop today. Gone fishing. Like that's our, that's whenever we don't, yep. we don't talk about the flower. But uh, just a, an honorable mention there, I guess, for, uh, for those flowers that Ron is working so, so hard on. So yeah, I think we're into the party proper. The K-Bear Silver Anniversary, 25 years. You see like a, a big like K-Bear 25. Um, what would you call that? Like a... I don't know. So it kind of looks like it might be an ice sculpture, but I don't think it's really an ice sculpture. It's probably a prop, um, but it looks nice. It is, like I said, a lovely looking celebration. There are string instruments. The decor is amazing. There are candles. Uh, we even get to see that clock. Uh, what episode was that from? Remember the clock? It's the one with Rolf. With yeah. Rolf, yeah. Let me see. That was called Nothing's Perfect. Uh, that was in the fourth season, this season, uh, episode three. So calling it back to earlier this season. Uh, the clock has been maintained, so Rolf would be very happy because it seems to be working. Uh, but yeah, everyone looks amazing. Um, I took down, Ed relates the uh, just the appearance of everything and everybody to a movie called History is Made at Night. Uh, oh, it stars Charles Boyer, 1937. I just think that's an amazing title. And I want to point out that Criterion just recently released this on DVD and Blu-ray when I was looking it up. I think it was April of this year. And sorry, just one more plug for Criterion because I actually, 
this is has nothing to do with me watching this episode today, but I did somehow buy a, a, a Blu-ray from them today. And uh, I will say that they, if, if you're listening to this in the month of May in 2021, they've got a sale, 30% off all discs. So if you want to check out the Criterion, uh, if you want to check out this movie, History is Made at Night, 30% off. We are not sponsored by Criterion, by the way. Uh, this is a free plug for <laughs> free them. Plug, if you work for Criterion. I'll, yeah, maybe I can email this to them. And Charles, you can give them our pitch. <laughs> uh, yeah, in this scene, they also talk about a lot more food in there. One of them was the Chinese pearl balls. Uh, basically, those are like, it's uh, whatever meat that you want. Traditionally, I think it's beef, I want to say. But I don't think oh. it has to be. And you just stuff that into a shape of a ball. And then you have rice surrounding it. So it's like a rice ball of sorts. I like that. And it's really good. It's one of my Ooh. favorite things to eat. Sounds good. Good taste by Maurice for having that at the party. <laughs> and yeah, otherwise, this is just a scene, once again, just showing off the party, saying, you know, look at what I got. You know, uh, I, I got another line that I didn't understand why it's in there, but uh, it's, it's kind of in response to that movie title that um, Ed says. He mentions the actor Charles Boyer, and Ron says... Oh yeah, I think I like him so much because people say we look like twins or something. Like I look like Charles Boyer, and they say, "Yeah, he's like a good-looking guy." Uh, uh, I think Marie says, "Yeah, I met him once. He had like two blondes on each arm. Like he had a blonde on each arm." And Ron says, "You know, like you know, I haven't had much trouble with the ladies either." Which, what is that? I mean, he's just saying like he. What was this about? We know that Ron is gay. Yeah, I think it's just saying that Ron looks so much like Charles Boyer that. It would indicate that okay. he was being, uh, yeah. <laughs> I also think that maybe if we looked into it with like a, you know, another deeper analytical lens, we could say that like it's, you know, it's an appearance thing. Like women will be attracted to him, but deep down he's not, he's absolutely Ooh, not yeah. even sharing the sexuality of this actor they confuse him with. That's a good read. Yeah. It's a really good read. Um, uh, there, this is where we're going to start getting into some Joel and Maggie stuff, but I have a, a note further ahead where, uh, it, it well, it has to do with that like crazy dolly shot that they had in the wine cellar. There's also a really great one at the very long table. I think it's when Adam is like when he finishes. Uh, no, he's like addressing uh, someone at the table, maybe Maurice, and then he just walks down from the head of the table to the other side, and the dolly follows through. So we're getting all of these um, well dressed actors and extras the whole set, we see it all in one shot. So it's like they had to dress this whole wall, you know, that side of the set. And then of course there's like the food on the table on the different plates. It's just a very impressive uh, shot that really shows the scale, you know, of how impressive this night is. Right. Uh, is that like, I just saw recently, uh, I, I it wasn't my first time seeing it, but I'm sure you've seen this before where it was like a film, I think it's called Wings. Wings. Let me check it out. Uh, I don't know if I have. What movie? What what year? I'm sorry. I'm looking up Wings. Film. 1927. 27. You know, I haven't seen it. It's a silent film set during World War One. Yeah, it's got like a famous shot of a dolly going through a party. And oh, wow. it was remarkable because at the time, it, I don't think it's ever been done to that extent or yeah. that... Uh, that well done, but like it, it's one of the things that's like commonly shared on the internet to be like, look at this shot of uh, the dolly going through all these different patrons at a party, and you can really get the scale of it. Yeah, very nice. Um, if we're going in order, we should talk about Joel and Maggie. This scene. Yeah, so this is the scene where Joel is apologizing to Maggie. He drags her away from the party to say like, "Hey, it's wrong of me to barge into your place." 
tell you what to think. Um, I was definitely upset, but, you know, that's not an excuse. And it's a pretty rare moment for Joel to outright apologize like that. Yeah, and it's impressive that, um, well, of course, Maggie, she I can tell she appreciates this. And uh, she's very thankful for it. And she even like kind of gives him an out, but Joel doesn't take it, which is very, very, it's a very righteous thing for our protagonist to do. You know, she's, uh, Maggie's like, well, you know, you're probably upset, you know? And Joel says, I was definitely upset, but that doesn't, that doesn't make any excuse for that. It is the only sincere moment in the entire episode, I feel. Uh, yeah. Joel only shows this whenever he is invited to the party in which he is accepted, in his mind at least, he is accepted by the townsfolk, that he's able to come into this peace of mind and sincerely apologize to another individual right here. Whereas the rest of the episode is shown with a bunch of two-faced hypocrisy. Yeah, and you know, I think it's like, if I were to put myself in Joel's shoes, he's probably thinking a lot in this entire episode, thinking about, you know, what what Maurice might have felt, like if he felt betrayed by Joel and like, why Maurice? What would drive Maurice to exclude Joel from this party? And he's like, what did I do? Like, what is Maurice feeling? And of course, it's not that, but he, you know, Joel probably spent so much time trying to place himself in, in Maurice's shoes. So now... Maybe he's uh, getting better at that, and so he's trying to put himself in Maggie's shoes. And because he says, you know, like whatever your motives are, they're your own. It's not my business. Like that's you. I understand you've got your own thing going on. It's totally cool. That's you. Should we talk about the deleted scene that follows, presumably after this one? I think we should. It follows like after you know Joel is called to check on Marilyn, and we talked about that, like the the fish that actually spoiled that Marilyn tried. Uh, Joel goes to see, she's going to be fine. Like she threw up a bunch, but I think she's going to be okay. Um, but there is a deleted scene that I think, I think it's just like blasphemous to not include this scene in the episode. Like I, I just can't believe that they cut this out. It is, it's just like, well, to me, it's a big part of this episode, but also just a huge part of like Maggie and Joel's overarching storyline, you know, um, I'll play this full, I'll play the scene. It's probably just like a minute and a half. Hey, Flashman, can I talk to you for a minute? Yeah, Ruthann, can you just help her get some fresh air? You know what we were talking about before? You, you mean? Yeah, no, look, I'm not saying it wasn't an accident. As a matter of fact, I'm positive it was an accident. My invitation? Yeah, you know, it's possible for a person to do a thing and not know they didn't know they did it. Yeah, absolutely. Flashman, would you do me a favor? Sure. Could you still be mad at me? <laughs> you want me to still be mad at you? Yeah, yeah, you can just act if you want to. What? Why? Well, because it makes things easier for me. Well, what, what do you mean, things? You know, you, me, it, this. It's just, a, it's a party tonight, you know, and I wanted to have fun, so if you could just pretend, if you can't get the real thing, you can, you can just pretend. <laughs> All right, yeah, um... <laughs> I guess I can do that, O'Connell. I could certainly be mad at you, so. You sure? Yeah. Good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I just think that's, you know, one, it's such an uh, important, like, moment for the relationship, but I think it's just such an interesting and unique idea for a scene. You know, the, she wants him to stay mad at, at her, 
And like, that's the, ooh, that's like the special sauce of any romantic comedy when the characters know that they love each other, but they won't allow themselves to be together and they kind of agree to, to keep themselves apart. It's just like, why would you lose that? That's so charged with um, just what you want from a romantic comedy. Right. I think it's also drilling into the themes, once again, of outside appearances, not matching the inward appearances. So Maggie is saying, like, you know, let's keep up appearances and have you be mad at me. I know (laughs) that you can fake it. Just act it. And she's just trying to return back to how things were before Mike had left. I I think that she's trying to, you know, tell him that, like, she's basically playing a part right now in that she's a lot more damaged underneath. Yeah. And good, good uh, underlining that with like the outward appearances. I like that she says in this scene, it's possible for a person to do a thing and not know they didn't know they did it. We know that has happened before with uh, uh, not ill wind, but what was the episode at? Love's Labor Mislaid, where Maggie sort of blacked out the memory that she had sex with Joel. So this is a thing with Maggie. She's like admitting again, you know, it's like, that's a thing that happens with me. (laughs) And just the writing is funny because it's kind of like a tongue twister of sorts in a way. Yeah, they should have definitely kept this scene in. I I think that it is a good resolution between Joel and Maggie. Otherwise, we're just left with... uh, a fine scene by itself, but I was honestly a little bit confused as to plotline involving Joel. Yeah, with if you just left it without that uh, deleted scene, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I know we talked about it beforehand, but I wanted to get into it a little bit right here, which is the scene with Marilyn in the salmon, mm. Marilyn in the salmon right here, where she gets sick eating it. Now, why do you think she got sick eating that, but not sick eating all the other food? Yeah, so the idea would be like. Well, you could totally get sick for from overeating, like what Ruthann is doing. But uh, I think uh, what was determined by Adam and I think what was suggested by Joel is that the fish is spoiled. So the French chef uh, who, you know, selected this fish was maybe judging it by outside appearances again. But also, like, it's funny, he's smoking while, like, I, I almost wonder if, like, the smell of the cigarette clouded his... Uh, his senses, so he couldn't tell that this fish was like rank, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I thought, I was I was reaching for this. Okay. But it, because it was such a strange scene that I thought that it, they had to have had a reason for including it, was that the salmon was caught this morning. It was relatively fresh to the environment. Ooh, mm-hmm. Whereas if you juxtapose it with the, with the demi-glaze, it's been in that pot for hours, and it's been stewing and stewing and stewing. Perhaps Marilyn grows sick upon eating something fresh because it's bringing them back to reality, and their body Ooh, can't accept it. That's pretty. That's awesome. the thing. That's <laughs> the freshest one. Whereas the the demi glaze that they've all been eating and appreciating, that one's been there so long, and they're <laughs> so used to it that they don't have an effect on it. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? When they take away the fish, uh, Adam creates a clam souffle or something, but he says he makes it out of like what he calls K-rations like in uh, in Maurice's cupboard. So like, you know, preserved and just like food that's been lying or, you know, just been hanging out in the cabinet for a while. So yeah, it's replaced with, uh, with I guess, less fresh ingredients. I do think that's cool. You know, whenever the, the fish goes bad, Maurice has a brief low point where he's like, what am I going to do? Like there's no fish. Like I think Hauling is enjoying... Uh, a certain course, and he's like, I wonder what's next. And Marie says, well, it's not going to be fish. 
and Adam, you know, strolls in and he comes to save the day. I think it's cool. He gets to be sort of like superhero chef and, and save the day there. Right. That brings us to possibly the thesis statement of the entire episode, which is where Chris and Ron both deliver toast for the host. Yeah. And I'll go ahead and play Chris's toast, which is kind of what we were talking about from the beginning of the episode, which is sort of like a tribute to Maurice and a tribute to America. So let's let's see what he says here. Uh, excuse me, everyone. If I could just have a moment of your time, I, I'd like to make the toast now. Maurice J. Minifield, our generous host, friend, and employer. I'm sure I join everyone here in saying thank you for these very fine, fine eats and drinks. You are a real American. You're an ex-Marine, an astronaut. You are America. You're rich. You're rapacious. You're, you're progress without a conscience, paving everything in its path. You're 5% of the Earth's population, yet consuming 25% of the Earth's natural resources. You pay a lot of taxes, you do a lot of charity work. Most of it's tax deductible, but your heart's in the right place. One thing's for certain, Chief. You have impeccable taste in the booze. Salutes! Yeah, that is what looks to be an optimistic view is actually deeply, deeply (laughs) cynical, in my opinion. Uh, Especially on the view of Maurice and on the view of America right there. I've I've never been one to like outright bash on America for uh, no reason. Um, obviously, there's plenty to fault, but I also think that there's like plenty of positives between there. There is a reason why, like at least for me, like my parents had immigrated here because it was uh, it was the country to be. It was a place to make a better future. And the way that Chris is portraying it is, is like no, it's uh, filled with this terrible, terrible greediness and. I guess that's one way to read it, but uh, I don't know. I've never been a fan of cynicism. I've always felt it was very lazy, and I don't think that's what this episode is trying to do, is to say that like cynicism wins in the end, but it is showing a side of America that I don't necessarily outright agree with. Yeah, and you know what? I think that is a very great read of this episode, just pointing out that the writers are aware and uh, underlining sort of uh, these ideas of... Uh, just sort of like a criticism of America. But I think what is so impressive about maybe this episode is that it is uh, it, it is trying to take an idea that is, uh, I'll use um, Ron's words, repugnant and disgusting. <laughs> this is a quick punch in correction. It's actually Maurice who uses those words to describe Ron and Chris. But Ron does get in a few good jabs in his speech to Maurice, which uh, we'll get to in just a second. But, you know, like an idea of like a very critical look on America, taking that idea, but somehow figuring a way to celebrate it. Because the ending of Chris's uh, toast is like, you know, you have a great taste in booze. Cheers to that. And it's like, of course, we're looking at some of our favorite characters and everyone is happy. Joel was invited to the party, actually. It's a lot of fun. Like, we can't help but enjoy the finer things. but. I I give it credit that it's aware of itself, but I think it does a very interesting balancing act of trying to also celebrate that at the same time. And I'm not saying that it's, uh, you know, that it is like totally celebrating this. Like it's kind of, it's kind of uh, balancing on that, on that tightrope, but it is an interesting dilemma that I think Ruthann sums up in like one of her first scenes that of course, this is terrible. We know it to be terrible, but we can't uh, we can't help but love it, which is 
kind of crazy. That is very cynical, actually. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what I'm getting at here, but I think it's such a great guiding principle and subject or a through line that, you know, they can focus an episode on this because it has both sides of that. And they're not really trying to be very pedantic and give you one side of it. They're showing both and it feels very real. It doesn't feel like overly critical or overly celebratory, you know? Right. Uh, should we play what Ron thinks of Maurice? Yeah, I'll play it right now. May I say a word? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Thank you. One thing you can count on, there's no hidden agenda with this man. Maurice Minifield is not going to stab you in the back. No, you're going to see him plunge that dagger right into your belly, pull it up, and twist and twist until your guts spill right out onto your shoes. Maurice, my dear friend, you're a homophobe and a bigot, but you have a truly marvelous aesthetic and a truly superb collection of Gershwin LPs. Here's to you, sir. Cheers. Yeah. Once again, we see Ron complimenting Maurice on his aestheticism, his taste, rather than Mm. his character. He outright calls him a homophobe and a bigot. Maurice is like at a roast or something for himself where he's just like, yeah, you're right, man. Like these are some top notch jokes right here. Uh, he's really happy about it. Uh, he compliments him on his George Gershwin record, which Mm. I'm pretty sure that Gershwin has been related to Gatsby a lot. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Sort of like this. It's like a kind of the sounds of of Gatsby. Maybe go ahead. Even the character of it himself, where it's like someone trying to transcend their background and uh, getting to a meteoric rise and then dying very, very early. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that about Gershwin. Yeah. So I thought that was another reference toward the Great Gatsby right there. Yeah. So after that, Maurice takes a stand and makes like a toast and uh, kind of glorifies Adam for you know like saving the uh, the dinner because of the fish went, went all bad. And he gives Adam the wine. He says, I offer you the pride of my wine cellar, the Chateau Latour 1929. And we talked about this. Yeah, Adam thinks it's delicious. Uh, Shelly shoots a glance to Eve. We get sort of like a, I think it's like an overhead-ish angle. We see like the whole table and, and uh, fade out with the strings playing, I, I want to say. But um, yeah, that is a, a pretty fine episode, I'd say. And uh, I forgot to mention up top that this was one of the episodes that was made available on uh, Laserdisc and VHS, you know, before the DVDs came out. This was one of, uh, you know, a few that they had released for home video. Mm, nice. Uh, one last thing I have to say about that final scene is that I like that it's Adam who has the first taste of that fake wine. He was the one who said, the only reason that I cook is because I am hungry the greediest and gluttonest of the characters mm. cannot even tell that he is consuming something that is fake. Yeah. And it fits in line with, uh, with Eve's, um, anecdote about the sort of like the dill replacement, the dill weed. Okay, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we typically invite on, uh, a guest, uh, usually a friend or just anyone, someone usually who has never seen the show before. Cause we like to get an outsider opinion, uh, our, our guest for this week is uh, my old friend, Corey. I, I think he may have seen this show before, but as you'll hear shortly uh, when we hear his thoughts, um, maybe just in passing and just small bits. But a little bit about Corey. Uh, I met him first in college. He's a filmmaker. Uh, he's an artist. And uh, <laughs> I have a short anecdote. I was recently reconnecting with Corey because, uh, well, we had 
well, we worked on a lot of student films together in college. And there was one student film where I believe Corey was like the art director, but um, whatever his position was, he was also, he was, he was making paintings to be used as props in the film. And they were kind of cartoony and fun and kind of goofy. But at the end of the shoot, uh, he gave out, you know, he was got to get rid of the paintings. And so some of the crew took it. And I took back one of these paintings and uh, this would be, I'm looking, it's actually, the painting is, uh, is, is dated. It has like a, his signature and the date on it. So this was 10 years ago. And uh, my parents texted me a picture of this painting. It was like, do you know what this is? I can show you, Charles, but I'll describe it. It's like a cartoon of two babies. Oh, I'll wow. share it. I'll like, I guess we don't have a website, so I'll just put it on Twitter or something. But yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's these two babies. It has a title too. So it's got a signature and a title, which is, I guess, not very common for paintings. But uh, the title is ellipsis, like dot, 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 and twins, exclamation point. Uh, this is probably not very exciting to just hear about. So try to go, try to go find it on Twitter. Anyway, let's set aside all of Corey's talents and approach his commentary uh, to see what he thought about this episode. Hi, Lee. This is Corey. Uh, I'm recording from my car. I hope the audio quality is decent. But thanks for letting me participate in the podcast. So Northern Exposure, um, not a show I watched, but I'm familiar with it. I've seen a few episodes here and there, enough that when I hear the theme music, it's like an instant response and I feel, okay, I'm in good hands for the next uh, 40-something minutes, you know, I'm in good good company. And just a kind of a pleasant feelings associated with the, the moose walking around the town and the, and the characters. The one thing I was hyper aware of growing up, though, with this, sh- you know, this show coming on was that the actress who plays Shelly is from Mississippi because, you know, being from here, that was the thing everyone would say is like, oh, yeah, Northern Exposure. Yeah, there's a girl from Mississippi on that show. So uh, I was tickled that this episode has a Shelley uh, storyline. And uh, one of my first good chuckles was um, in the scene where she's being introduced to the concept of this wine being really old and really expensive. And, and you know, they tell her it's from 1929. And she says, oh, they must have screwed the cork in real tight or something like that. I, I laughed. And I laugh because I'd had a similar thought earlier in the week. I, I've got a bottle of wine in the refrigerator that's been in there for a while. And I was just thinking, you know, how is it that something can sit there for so long, and but you can still drink it? Is it the cork has really sealed in so well? I, I just don't know the science there. I, maybe it's something I could Google later. But she's great. She's a lot of fun. Uh, this episode mostly though, deals with this character, the rich guy character's wealth display and this big feast he puts on for the town. Um, and so I think I feel like it probably was atypical of an episode in terms of the dialogue because so much of it is really hitting home the fact that this is, uh, you know, very opulent and expensive, fine, upper-class you know, stuff he's arranging for this, uh, this feast. Uh, and the dialogue is so verbose and rhythmic and kind of poetic in a way. It almost felt like I was watching Deadwood a couple of times when these characters really launch into these 
<laughs> these uh, monologues or whatever. Uh, but that was really entertaining. But yeah, overall, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think my favorite character, other than Shelley, uh, is probably uh, Marilyn. Uh, probably always was and probably always will be. Uh, I hope uh, her her stomach didn't get uh, too upset by the that fish. Um, I hope she's okay. But it, it makes me want to go back and watch some more of the show. So, uh, you know, for an episode to watch at random, there wasn't anything that, you know, turned me off. In fact, it, it, it was pleasant enough that it, like I say, it makes me want to go back and, and watch some more Northern exposure. There's also a prompt here, uh, or a kind of a, a question y'all have got here to tie into the podcast. Let me read it. It says, have you ever been in a situation where you were stuck or didn't want to be in a place? And in the end, you hopefully gained something or found yourself changed for the better. All right. So now you, the tables are turning and it's about me now. So, oh man, that's kind of a deep thing. But yeah, you know, there's times um, where I felt kind of uh, trapped or stuck in a small town uh, and really wanted to broaden my experience and get out into the world. And there's also been times where I've wanted to return to that small town environment for the comfort and the familiarity uh, that it provides. But, um, you know, there's, there's definitely some stuff about being kind of stuck in a situation that, you know, you learn to appreciate things and go at a slower pace, maybe, and to hopefully not uh, overthink things. Uh, a lot of times when you're in these small towns, and even if you feel stuck, and like everyone else around you is just moving at such a slower pace than what you'd be used to coming from a city or something. Sometimes it helps just to realize that, uh, you know, all we really got to do is make it to the end of the day. And then that, and it's a success if, if you've done that. But I'll also say it kind of sucks living in a small town. And sometimes you're stuck in places where these people, uh, especially now are starting to harbor kind of some hateful feelings towards the world outside. And that's not good. I think we all just need to try to come together. But um, I won't go off on a tangent. I'll just end it there. Hope I didn't ramble too much. But those are my thoughts. Thanks. Okay, so right off the bat, I appreciate that Corey um, recorded in the car, you know, tried to like get some sound isolation. Uh, It's probably an old technique we may have used in film school for like recording voiceover but seemed to work out pretty good here. Um, And one of the first things he noticed, and I guess typically for anyone watching the show, is the theme song. Uh, Very iconic if you were, you know, watching TV in the 90s. Yeah, and we talked about this before. I think it was like a hit song. I think one of our guests said they DJed like a high school. This was, I think, Lee, John Paul and Lee. Uh, Lee said he he DJed a, a high school dance and play that song, and like everyone was dancing to it. <laughs> I, I had forgotten about that, actually. <laughs> yeah, that that always struck me because I knew it was like a popular show, and the uh, the like the music from Northern Exposure CD was like a pretty good seller. I just never realized how that song was actually like people listened to it and <laughs> loved it. 
Let's see. So Corey is from Mississippi, and he talks about uh, the actress Shelley. I guess apparently everyone in Mississippi knew about this show or knew about this actress in the show because she was born in Jackson, Mississippi. And something we didn't talk about in our uh, analysis or our commentary at the beginning of this episode was uh, I really actually do like this joke as well. The the joke about the the wine is so old. Shelly was like, oh, they must have screwed that cork in real tight. <laughs> yeah. I actually didn't know that uh, Shelly was from Mississippi. I don't, I don't know why I never thought to realize that. Yeah. I, you know, maybe I'd read that and then just kind of like shelved that in the back of my mind because it also, you know, I wasn't thinking about that either. Um, who do you think is like the most famous person from Louisiana? Where we're where we're from, probably Drew Brees, right? Like just Ooh, if we if yeah. we went with like nationwide recognition, uh, Drew Brees is the quarterback for the Saints. I I I feel really bad, but like I don't even know if Drew Brees is from Louisiana or if he just plays for the Saints. Yeah, that's a good point. I want to believe that he was like born here, but ooh, born in Dallas, Texas. Did he go to Did he go to college here? He went to high school in Austin. Uh, and he actually played for the San Diego Chargers before he played for the Saints. But I mean, he lived in New Orleans. He's like a he was a big presence in New Orleans. Uh, yeah, he he's you know he qualifies. Yeah, that's kind of like the I don't know what the term is. Like I, I don't think transplants the right word. But there are a bunch of like uh, famous people that went to New Orleans, and a lot of people associate them with New Orleans. But like that doesn't necessarily mean that they represent Louisiana. Like. John Hamm or Nicolas Cage, <laughs> like those type of people, like they're not from Louisiana, but a lot of people are like, oh, they embody New Orleans. It's like, yeah, I guess. Uh, what would you say is the most famous Louisianian? Well, yeah, I'll give you a, uh, a the one that always comes to mind is um, Britney Spears. And I, I'm going to just double check this because I know there's like a Britney Spears museum in uh, Kentwood, I want to say, Louisiana. Um, ooh, but she was not born in Louisiana. So this doesn't count. She was born in Macomb, Mississippi. Uh, so I, I bet, uh, I bet Corey could have told us that, but, um, let's see, why is there, there's like a Britney Spears museum in Kentwood. Did she like, did she grow up in Louisiana? Cause I remember seeing like, there's footage of her from like the Mickey mouse club and she's like teaching you how to like eat crawfish and stuff. She's gotta be like, oh, okay. Okay. At, sorry. Britney Spears lore at the age of three, she started attending dance lessons in her hometown of Kentwood, Louisiana. I thought your hometown is like where you were born, like your birthplace, but I guess not. I, yeah, she was definitely, I mean, she was born in Macomb, Mississippi, uh, but it says her hometown of, so they probably just moved there, I guess. Like maybe, maybe she didn't really yeah, they might have, for long. Yeah, she might have just been born in Macomb, Mississippi, but then like after she was born, she moved to Kentwood, Louisiana and decided that was her that was her hometown. Yeah. And then like she spent some time in Atlanta. Doesn't matter. Uh, this technically qualifies, but I, I guess it guess it really doesn't. I think the the other person that I think of when it comes to like Louisiana fame would be uh Dr. I believe it's Michael DeBakey. Dr. DeBakey, it's the person who invented open heart surgery, as well as like a lot of other stuff. But Charles, he was like from from like our area. Yeah, yeah, he is. Super famous nationwide, but like not not in like the pop culture sphere. Yeah, but he, his, his work has definitely impacted, uh, like you know, broad reaches across the world. He's probably made the most impact across the world, but but maybe we'll go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say like another one would. 
I guess politically, it would be James Carville. Oh yeah, who would be yeah, yeah the, the raging Cajun. One. That's that's another great. Uh, and then I'll just throw in more of like an entertainment. I think like okay, I'm just there's I'm sure there's a bunch of actors we could try to figure out. I would just have to go back to Wikipedia. But uh, the creator of uh, True Detective, the the series True Detective, is also kind of from like Southwest Louisiana area. Yeah, Nick Mezzapalato. Uh, I think there's another filmmaker that's from the New Orleans area. Uh, he is the one that's in the league, like that uh, television show on FX. F- FXX, I'm sorry, it has two X's, <laughs> not just one. Mark Duplass. Du- oh, uh, yeah, the Duplass, the Duplass brothers. Yeah. They're both from... Yeah. Um, I didn't, I've never seen the league. Um, but yeah, okay. I think, uh, I think that was a fun little exercise. But let's get back to Corey's thoughts. Uh, I wanted to talk about... I really... Could not stop laughing when he was talking about, you know, the we we're talking about the corks. It's the cork must be screwed on real tight. And he's got like a real life anecdote. Like he has some wine in the fridge that is like, wow, this is like, I can't believe I can still drink this. Uh, I will say that wine, it turns to vinegar, like it, you know, when it spoils. So you may be drinking bad wine, Corey, but it may just taste a little more. I don't know, acidic or a little more biting. Uh, so if you start getting an upset tummy while you're drinking it, you you know it's probably starting to turn. Uh, and and I'm sure I'm sure wine can get to a point after it's uncorked can get to a point that it will harm you if you drink it. So just be careful. Corey also mentioned that he was reminded of the television show Deadwood. Um, have you ever seen Deadwood, Lee? I've never watched Deadwood. No, he was talking about how Northern Exposure has such verbose, rhythmic, poetic uh, language. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I should be checking out Deadwood now. Yeah, I know that it stars Timothy Oliphant. Oliphant? Yeah. I'm not entirely too sure how you say his last name. Uh, very talented actor. I know that he's in Justified, which he does a phenomenal role in. Nice. Yeah, I like Tim- Timothy Oliphant. I think, yeah, I think Oliphant's correct. Corey says his favorite character, other than Shelley, was Marilyn. Probably always was his favorite character and always will be. Um, I can see that. You know, she's very, I feel like a lot of people always love the addition of Marilyn to like a, to a, to a situation. You know, you have just this quiet, uh, and sometimes she can be very wise, uh, just of very few words, but seems like a, a, a very good addition to a scene. And Corey answered our question. Just the idea of being out out of place, maybe, but growing from that and learning from that. It's sort of like thinking like the situation of Dr. Joel Fleischman being like a fish out of water. And we think that this show sort of uh, sort of details like a progression of his character uh, wanting to escape and then sort of, uh, you know, learning a lot of life lessons, I guess. But Corey says, you know, that to relate to that, it would be sort of like the small town feeling and uh, feeling trapped, perhaps. But on the other hand, there's also a comfort and a familiarity that he says. You learn to appreciate things and go at a slower pace. Made me think of, uh, I've never read this book, but you may be familiar with uh, Be Here Now, like that Ram Dass, uh, very spiritual kind of, uh, um, very Zen, I guess, idea. I have never heard of that. I wonder if you'd see the cover, if you would recognize it. But it's just like a... Yeah, and it's kind of unique because it's not just like normal text in a book. It's uh, like the text is formatted usually around some artwork or like in a different 
in a certain formation. Um, so you could, you know, you could just like flip through this book. I almost feel like it makes me think of like a coffee table book that I don't think that's in, that's the intention behind it, but it is like formatted, uh, you know, artistically, I, I suppose. Yeah. It definitely looks like it belongs just on, on cof- top of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> coffee table. definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a perfect coffee table book perhaps. Um, <laughs> but one thing I liked that Corey said was, uh, we're talking about like going at a slower pace. He says one thing you can you can realize is that all all you really got to do is make it to the end of the day. And if you can do that, that's a success. And I feel like I learned this or I felt this or really related to it. Maybe kind of too late in life, but in, I I can remember in college I was like maybe having like a very stressful class and the professor himself basically related a similar idea. You know, like the the scariest thing is realizing that you're not going to be able to finish the work that you have to do. But if you can, like, if you can come to terms with that, you know, that is like going to eliminate your stress. I don't know if that's, maybe I'm like paraphrasing this in the wrong way. It seems like you should just give up on everything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you, you have your limits and you're just going to do as much as you can, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's actually a really good idea because it's trying to explain uh, compromise on your ideals. I, I know that's certain art or like, I know that in certain fields of art, it, the constraint of time is always looming above it. So it will never be finished. It's just finished whenever the time limit is reached. Yeah. So I know like, for example, off the top of my head, like SNL is kind of like that where the sketch has to be written in a week and that's mm. it. Like that's all the time limitation that you have. So that art piece will be finished then. Um, I know for like animation, you always will have to finish by the time that it broadcasts. You can continuously keep working on a cut, but it eventually would have to go to air. So there's never like a quote unquote perfect cut. You can always keep working on it however long that you want, but uh, the constraint of time will always kick in. Yeah, there's a, I'm not sure who says it, but there's a great quote, art is never finished, it's abandoned. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you can always keep embellishing, uh, I guess, with animation or keep improving. But at a certain point, you have to know when. Yeah, how do you know? You just have to know when it's done or there's a deadline. So you have to finish it. And so finally, just on this last little bit of Corey's anecdote or, or Corey's um, idea here, it's like he didn't want to start rambling too much. But he was talking about how small towns can, they can also suck. Uh, like you, you <laughs> I don't know exactly why this would be, but I guess is uh, he. Well, he was saying like hateful feelings towards the outside world, and and that's not great. That's never good. But maybe that comes from in a small town environment, everyone knows each other, and you're very close, very tight knit. So it might be hard to introduce new people, outside ideas. Uh, you know, when everyone is so close together. But I don't know if that's true or not. But I will say what's great about. Northern Exposure in the town of Sicily is that it is a small town and everyone is very close. But I feel like for the most part, everyone is super welcoming to anyone. Like everyone just feels very comfortable. They're talking about their feelings. They're helping each other out. And I think that's what makes, um, it's not called Southern charm. It's just a Southern hospitality, you know, but I guess in the north, you know, <laughs> small town hospitality. Yeah, there's just something really charming about that. So that does it for Corey's thoughts on this episode. Corey, thanks again for uh, watching the episode, taking the time to record your thoughts. 
And uh, thanks for doing it in sort of like a soundproof uh, environment. Now, Charles, we're going to be taking a break next week for my birthday. And also, I guess we should have said you're, you're recovering from, you know, your, your COVID vaccination. So thanks. Thanks again for recording right now. <laughs> yeah, I have the second shot right now, which I think affects young people more than uh, Is that older people. Wow, yeah. Uh, I, I think so, or at least from anecdotal evidence, yeah. it looks to be true <laughs> right there. But I, I am very uh, not lethargic. Yeah. As of, <laughs> keep, I, keep it like that. Don't edit that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I'm, uh, as of yesterday, fully vaxxed like two two weeks after my, my second dose. So uh, we're getting there, and and Charles, you're you're gonna pull through, I know. So next week we're gonna take off. Uh, just to, we've been kind of slammed with uh, our vaccinations. My birthday's coming up, so we're gonna take uh, some time to get the rest of the episodes ready to go. But uh, when we do return, Charles, we're gonna talk about episode twenty-two of season four. It's called Kaddish for Uncle Manny. Is Kaddish a Hebrew word? It is a Hebrew word. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It is a prayer. It's like a Hebrew prayer, uh, but but that's enough. Maybe just take a guess. What do you think? Uh, what do you think this might be? What was the full title of it again? Kaddish for Uncle Manny. Uh, well, I'm gonna guess that's Joel's uncle right there. So maybe something happens to him, and then the news travels to Sicily, Alaska, and Joel's reacting to it throughout the entire episode. Yeah, I think that is all a hundred percent correct. Of course, like it's very vague, so we've got a lot to talk about to expect uh, in the next uh, on the next episode. I guess in two weeks. Well, Charles, thanks again for potting, and uh, may you have a swift recovery. I'll uh, ha- enjoy your time off. <laughs> yeah, and uh, happy. Not what is the opposite of belated? Early, happy it, early yeah. birthday. It, it, early birthday in advance. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, this is us signing off. <laughs> Take it easy, Charles. <laughs> Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Corey for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.